Welcome back to another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work, a guide live podcast slash B2B jam session. Super excited about our guest that we have on today. And before I get into who it is, it's a surprise. It's a it's truly a surprise. Want to show love to everyone that's currently tuning in right now. Hope you're having a happy Monday. Usually, I'm always chiming in from California, and it's the same today. I'm chiming in from California, Oakland specifically. So Oakland, where you at? If you are tuning in from Oakland, show us some love in the comments. If you're tuning in from San Francisco, show us some love in the comments. If you're tuning in from the UK, show us some love in the comments. And in fact, our guest for today is, I, I believe he's beaming in from the UK, unless he's unless he's uh, he's traveled. I think that's where I, I, he was at the last time I talked to him, but he'll let us know. But he's an awesome, awesome, awesome business leader. Today, I'm speaking with Gagan Biani, who's an entrepreneur, business leader, and former co-founder of Udemy and the CEO of Sprig, the former CEO of Sprig. And he'll tell you a little bit about that journey. You know, we're going to be talking about entrepreneurship today, as well as his thoughts on education reform. You know, what the industry in terms of the tech industry should be focused on when it comes to gender parity and inclusivity and equity, as well as the behavior shifts that we're seeing in a post-COVID-19 future. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, you know, and it's going to be a really enjoyable conversation. I've had the pleasure of talking with Gagan in past conversations, and this guy is just brilliant, let me tell you, okay? So definitely get excited. If you have any questions for either of us, let us know in the comments. We'll engage with you. We'll show you some love, all right? With that said, let me show love to Angel, who's tuning in. Andrea, who's tuning in. Andrea, who's tuning in from Italy. What's up, Andrea? What's up, Angel? Angel, how are you? Hope you're well. Francesca, Puerto Rico. You need to bring me out to Puerto Rico, Francesca. I would love to come to Puerto Rico. And shout out to Angel as well, who's tuning in from San Jose, California. Much love, much love. And we have a LinkedIn user who's saying he's tuning, he or she's tuning in from Guadalajara, Mexico. Guadalajara, Mexico, which is a long ways away. Thank y'all so much for tuning with us. With that said, Gagan, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going, Tim? It's going well. Where are you tuning in from? Where are you beaming in and joining us from today, Matt? Oxford, Oxford, UK. Oxford, UK. Dude, how did yeah. you get there during a the pandemic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got in, I got here just, well, I've been here for about a year now. Uh, wow. Usually I was on and off. So I was obviously before the pandemic, I was traveling between the UK and the US. My girlfriend's doing her MBA here. Um, wow. But uh, during the pandemic, we spent about three months in the U.S. and then we came here to spend about three months here. Um, yeah. So we took we took a flight to get here. Well, thank you so much for finding time to you know spend time with us while you're in Oxford, UK, man. Would love for you to share with us a little bit about your background. You know, so formerly you were the co-founder of Udemy, one of the hottest you know education startup tech startups of the last ten years. But I would love for you to kind of take us back before that. You know, who was Gaga? You know, what was he doing before he was this rock star entrepreneur? Um, Ten years ago, I was, well, it's even more now. Jeez, it's like uh, 2008 is really what you're talking about. If you want to know before Udemy, Um, I had just graduated from UC Berkeley. I was a, you know, typical Indian American boy in, uh, in the Bay Area growing up. So I grew up like... 20 minutes from where you live probably or 30 max because I grew up in Fremont, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, I I grew up in Fremont and and I went to Berkeley undergrad and uh, 
Then I graduated and was uh, taking a traditional post, you know, post economics degree job in consulting uh, for Accenture. And it just so happened that I was bored out of my mind at Accenture and the uh, economy blew up at the same time. And so it only made it more boring, really. Um, and so I was basically thinking about what I wanted to do next or what I was going to do to get out of the, uh, you know, the challenge of not enjoying my work, basically. Uh, and I found entrepreneurship. Really, I found it entirely on the Internet. So I didn't know anyone who was an entrepreneur. I didn't have any. Uh, I had one friend who, who had started a company in college uh, that was like a local company in Pittsburgh uh, at the school that he was at at CMU. That was it. Um, so that's where I started. Wow. No, that's amazing, man. And, and you know, it's interesting because we're currently talking with you right now during a current economic downturn as it's been purported and you started entrepreneurship at the, around the last economic downturn. What's the, I want you, want you to share a little bit about, you know, why you think, you know, people should still take risks on building something or solving big problems that are currently happening in today's age. You know, how do people stay motivated to build businesses, whether it be within an economic downturn or not? Yeah, I mean, motivation is is uh, definitely one of the most difficult things when you're starting a company because every given day, uh, so on a macro level in your life, it's really hard to want to make that kind of risk. And then every given day, you're dealing with all sorts of challenges and successes and failures. And that roller coaster ride can really be sort of difficult to to want to push through. Uh, so on the macro level, I mean, when uh, there's a downturn, a particular, particularly this type of downturn, the economy changes a lot. Things change in the world uh, at a much faster pace. I mean, we've seen the world fast forward between three and 10 years, depending on what industry you're in, uh, in about four months. And so uh, there's a lot of new opportunities that come during a downturn that make it pretty exciting time to start a company. The other thing is honestly, like it's harder to get a job. And so if you're someone who was recently out of work or like me was kind of uh, sort of forced into work that I wasn't that excited about, um, not forced labor, I just mean forced as in it was the best option I could find at the time. Hmm. Um, but if you're someone who isn't thrilled about what they're doing, it's a good time actually to go and try something new. Um, and then uh, finally, I'd say that if you are someone who has a stable job, and who is sort of excited uh, about and and who who but who isn't excited about that job? Uh, this is a time where your work might be uh, for some people at least might be slower. For some people, it's a lot busier, and yeah. for those people, I, I don't have an answer for them. But if it's a lot slower, uh, then it's a really good time to do something on the side. Um, yeah. And uh, that's skill, right. Sorry. Or pick up new skills on Udemy. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, online education basically fast forwarded three years. Uh, we we saw Udemy growth that we've never seen. We haven't seen in in a, in a few years. Um, this this past uh, court, two quarters, and it's primarily driven by the fact that people have. Uh, I think encouraging. I'm encouraged to see people go back to online education during this time. Yeah, no, 110%. You know, I, I want to get your thoughts on education reform because we're actually seeing a lot of conversation around universities now thinking about how do we go ahead and adapt to this online education model. Well, what do you think needs to be done for university schools and I think the broader workforce to start embracing online learning and e-learning? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think that 
they will embrace online learning because that's what they've been uh, that's sort of what they've been forced into. So if you take yeah. a look at here at Oxford, you know, uh, and this is true at universities all over the world, they don't know if they're going to have classes in the fall. They yeah. don't have, uh, you know, th they they have students who are going to come in and they don't know what the format's going to be like and how they're going to do it. And they've just spent the last six months roughly mm -hmm. uh, doing courses entirely remote. So I don't think the question is about whether or not they'll move into online learning. The question is whether they'll be good at it and whether it'll still be worth the value that they have provided. And I think that fortunately, uh, this has created an opportunity for new entrants to come in and provide an experience that is rethought and is better for students. Because I don't think that the modern university it uh, serves students in the best way possible. I mm -hmm. still think it's a profitable decision to go to college. So I'm still in favor of people going to college and going to graduate school. Yeah. But I think it's four to 10 times worse than what it could be. And yeah. so those are very, those are very different things. I'm not saying college is bad. I'm just saying that college could be this and it's this. So why are we settling for this? It's mm -hmm. not doing a service to everyone. And so my goal is to make it so that uh, college is a lot more valuable uh, in the future. And I, I think it will be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I remember my college experience, Matt. Most of everything I learned around product management and business was outside of college, 120%. <laughs> I, it, but the, the experience, the relationships, and I think the exposure to a different diverse set of people and community changed my life. So I, I actually, I agree with you and the experience around college. I actually think it's important, but it's how do we embrace kind of, you know, some of the elements of the private sector and how do we bring that into college campgrounds is it's what I'm more, it's what I'm more interested in and finding more about. Yeah. I mean, the, it's, it's, we, everyone knows the, the statistics or the, or the sort of the theory behind how college doesn't prepare you for the real world, doesn't prepare yeah. you for a job. Um, and it, it goes way beyond that college college fundamentally is the gatekeeper that prevents anyone else from preparing you from the real world in a good way. So college made sense when it was started. And it honestly still generally makes sense today. It's this idea that, you know, as humans evolve and as we get smarter and smarter, we need more time for development. So yeah. it used to be people, you know, finish school at a, at the, at, in the third grade at age 10 or, uh, or, or age nine. Um, crazy. and <laughs> right. I mean, that, that wasn't that long ago. Dude, yeah. That was like, that was like an, a, that was like a hundred years ago. Right. That's like true. there were, and, and still today in lots in some parts of the world, people either don't go to school or they end school in their youth. Um, but of course, eventually as humans got, uh, had higher life expectancies. And as we got smarter, uh, essentially as a, as a race, uh, we figured out that if we continued our education for longer, we might get more and more sort of personal and professional development during that time and personal and intellectual development during that time. And college was created as originally for the elite few who mm. were at that level and wanted to have that level, that additional four years or three years of, uh, of liberal arts education. Well, that's not really what most people go to college for today. And we haven't changed it since then. And so my hope is that during this pandemic, people already knew this, but there was no sort of uh, lever that was driving change. There was no uh, catalyst for change. And so the system as it existed was not being questioned sufficiently for people to want a different uh, an alternative. And now I think we're seeing uh, people demand that alternative, and that's really all we need. 
We just need a little bit of a spark. And I think that we'll see massive change in the college landscape. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, so you kind of see COVID-19 as that triggering catalyst that is causing a lot of this talk around education reform. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I was really disappointed that this is what caused it. I mean, this yeah, is horrible. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, this is like, it's like the worst situation you could possibly iman- imagine. Yeah. That's at least, at least in the modern era. Obviously, a worse. There are lots of worse situations. Uh, you know, we could be at war, etc. This isn't actually as bad as as that. But it's a pretty bad situation given uh, that that is causing what I think will be a bunch of positive change. So we will have a lot of of negative consequences of this. Uh, and I'm, but but it's very clear that the human race is not going to end in the next uh, year as a result of this pandemic. And given that that's true, and we're gonna those of us, uh, hopefully that'll include both of us. But those of us who survive this and mm-hmm. move on to the next phase are are going to be uh, are going to benefit from the uh, the the change that is going to occur as a result of this time. No, that's powerful, man. I want to show love to our amazing community and audience. Shout out to Betty. She's asking during your time with Udemy. You know, how did you to me think about partnering with colleges and universities? She's an educator yeah. herself, so would love to get your thoughts on this. Dagan. Sure. Th- thanks, Betty, for, for the question. I mean, when we started Udemy, we were completely outside the traditional college and education system. So uh, we certainly tried to talk to professors, but we didn't believe that the modern education system was going to be where we got most of our success. And we ended up being right. Uh, and then we ended up being very wrong. So we were right in the sense that uh, Gagan Biani was incapable of convincing any professors to come and join him when he was starting uh, Udemy and teaching and getting people to teach courses. We were wrong in that Coursera and Udacity, uh, because they were from Stanford, started in Stanford campus, they basically were able to get professors to teach online. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of missed th- that trend, but on the flip side, uh, Udemy ended up being very successful because it taught a totally different set of uh, curriculum and skills, right? You can actually go to Udemy and for, you know, between 10 and $100, you can learn everything you need to go and get a new job. And that uh, is not true. Like that is in spite of what universities provide. Hmm. Um, And so actually we didn't, have a lot of success with universities. I don't think they took us very seriously, nor did they really uh, want to uh, sort of partner with a young startup like that. But when their own professors starting putting courses on the internet, all of a sudden they paid attention. And that was a, that was a pretty interesting thing to watch happen. Yeah. They caught on real quick, right? (laughs) They caught on with the movement. It's crazy, man. You know, and I think we're, we're, it's it's funny because I think uh, I wonder if professors are concerned right now with this current climate on how they need to change how they educate as teachers, you know, where everything is shifting back to online. And, you know, I'm actually currently working with my alma mater, University of Texas, to think about more. How do how do teachers adapt? How do professors and universities adapt in this current climate? So you really bring up a great point, man. Yeah. And uh, I mean, so I actually will say that I don't think they caught on that quick. But universities and and sort of these sort of elitist institutions are very good at catching on enough that they satiate the desire of the public Mm. while not catching on enough to the new things that they actually really improve or change the system. And I think this happens in politics and it happens, you know, and you and I talked about this a little bit actually in our pre-call, but this is definitely happening. This definitely happened with Udacity and Coursera. They gave the the world enough to sort of uh, hold off 
innovation for five years. I mean, the truth is what they could have done and what they did do are vastly different. They could have made a much bigger improvement in online in, in the world uh, than they did. Uh, but they did enough to keep uh, people happy and keep people feeling like things are moving. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's actually something I'm worried about right now. I'm worried about watching, you know, I don't think we have a very good alternative today to college mm. and universities. I don't think we can take, you know, the uh, few million students, uh, I believe it's a few million or maybe a half a million to a million students a year who go to universities um, every, you know, who start their university education. I don't think we have an alternative place for them to go yeah. and to get the experience that they're getting. So I'm also concerned that because we don't have an alternative that can quickly take the place of universities today, that the universities will do a little bit or enough to sort of hold, hold themselves over until after COVID is done. And then we may see some change, but not enough change. And so I'm still a believer that we need to work outside the system to uh, dramatically improve it while simultaneously, hopefully uh, encouraging the system itself to reform, even though I think it'll do it somewhat slowly. Mm, man, these are powerful thoughts, man. Gems. I want to show love to Betty, Mrs. Hart. Oh, ain't that the truth? College is the gatekeeper, which prevents us from our ability to succeed. The, the tea is piping hot. So she's, she's feeling you on that. man. <laughs> so I want to show love to Tony who has a few questions for you, he wants to touch on your thoughts for K through 12 learning. You know, he believes online learning will be easier to adapt for adults versus children. Children rely on parents' ability to be technologically savvy to learn, while adults can learn on their own. Most parents are 26 on average, which means they are millennials. What are your thoughts on this, Gagan? Yeah, cool. great question, and that's a good stat. I like the 26 on average stat. That was really helpful. Um, I, I, I'm not an expert in K through 12. I'll be the first one to admit it. Um, and I am not someone who spends a lot of time outside of my own world in terms of education. So I'm not super knowledgeable uh, in, in that area. What I am pre pretty knowledgeable about, I would say, is how uh, incumbents uh, take control and sort of manage systems and ensure uh, a lack of change, which is what mm -hmm. I just talked about with universities. So I do not really think that online is the solution to everything with mm. K through 12. I don't think many people do, to be honest. I don't even think that there are a lot of uh, online education companies in K through 12 that are succeeding or even ones that aren't who believe that children should just spend all their time on a computer and learn from that. That's, a, that's not a common thought, actually. Yeah. But the thought that people have is that our modern institutions, that is our schools, our school unions, both the uh, administrative side and the teacher side, and our state governments, which largely run our schools, have absolutely are absolutely incapable and have proven to be incapable of improving the system as the world changes. And so technology is simply a wedge to get to students to ensure that we can try to make some change. But I believe personally that true change, the change that probably you're looking for, if you're someone who wants your children to have a much better 
uh, educational out a much better educational system is not going to happen unless we change it at the governmental level. And I think that only changes if we remove power away from the people who are currently preventing us from moving forward. So, you know, I, I subscribe to this newsletter called Govern for California, uh, which I think is incredibly powerful. And it talks about the unions in California, both the prison unions, but also the teachers unions and, uh, you know, various other and the police unions and how they uh, dramatically, and this is a bipartisan, uh, uh, by the way, or nonpartisan, I should say, nonpartisan, it's not bipartisan, it's a nonpartisan uh, thread, Govern for California. And uh, they talk about how, uh, you know, teachers unions are regularly voting against and preventing schools from improving educational outcomes for students. And it's not their fault, it's because they're scared and they don't currently see the, the value in this. But we as a people have to start to vote in a way that we ask for this kind of change and to essentially override or ask the teachers unions to uh, vote in favor of things that are helpful to students. And I think that's a huge, huge challenge that we have and, and we obviously need to fix it. Yeah. Um, so I don't actually think the change is gonna happen through the internet. It's only gonna happen, sorry, Tim. Uh, it's only gonna happen if we uh, change the political system. Yeah, no, that's actually really a powerful point. And I think it speaks to this really, really huge need for cross-pollination and collaboration between private sector and the public sector, not only at the state level, but also at the governmental level. And I love your point about really taking power away from the people who currently withholding or preventing that, because often we see digitization, especially in education, as the only thing but it's going to be a mix of offline and online components that, that drive that change. Yeah. I mean, there's just, I mean, look, I, I'm on zoom calls. Uh, I actually only do like an hour or two of zoom calls a day. So I, I, but there's a reason why I only do that. Right. I just basically turned off all meetings or reduced my meeting load dramatically. Um, when I, when I, I quit my last company and since then I, I, I can't do like, you know, full days meetings all the time. <laughs> but nobody who's in Zoom calls all day, I've talked to many people who are like it. Nobody is like, oh, yeah, I want to spend the rest of my life just sitting in front of a computer digitally interacting with people. That's ridiculous. People like the flexibility of being able to work from home on occasion. And there are a lot of times where they would prefer to do a Zoom call because of the convenience of that. But they will replace that. They will, they will also supplement that or even replace the time that they're not in Zoom calls with in-person interactions in various ways. Mm -hmm. And I think kids are obviously going to have the same thing. They're, they're going to use their cell phones for certain things, but they're going to want to be in person and learn tact, tact, uh, you know, uh, tact with, uh, tact with their, with their fingers. Yeah. Um, and that's really important. Yeah. Much love to Mr. Carnell Tate, who's saying, what are some of the top trends that you are excited about in education that you see happening in the next one, five and 10 years? Man, he's asking you, he's asking you to think exponentially out. Yeah. Um, so in, in the next five to 10 years, I think that I, I'm hoping that we see a much uh, an acceleration of the rise of alternatives to uh, traditional education. So when I say traditional education, I mean uh, public schools and including charter schools, anything that's publicly uh, related or, or funded. Um, I mean uh, universities and, and colleges um, and probably also professional development um, curriculum that I think is also pretty bad and needs to be improved. Um, 
So I see an improvement in those things. Now, how, how do we do that? Well, I think that uh, as, we, as we've discussed, um, companies will utilize technology as a wedge, whether it's their marketing tool or whether it's their delivery mechanism or whether it actually improves outcomes will be different depending on the sector and the case. Uh, but companies will use technology and venture capital really as a wedge to provide alternatives to people that will continue to reduce the share of students who go through K-12, the traditional K-12 system, go through the traditional college system, and will utilize uh, new methods for that. What those methods are, I think, will vary dramatically. So there will be a lot more of, I think one, one thing that I think is going to be exciting is the rise of micro uh, classrooms. So classrooms that are actually smaller rather than bigger uh, because of the leverage you get via the internet wow. um, and the leverage you get via um, self-organization. So uh, I think that's one thing. Um, I think that we'll have uh, an increase in sort of um, flipping the classroom, which will be related to this. So I think people will get their content from centralized sources, which mm -hmm. by the way, they always have, right? Textbooks are the same in most states, right? Most state have statewide textbook rules and, and the textbooks are generally the same even across most colleges. And so of course there's gonna be a centralization of the content, but there might also be a centralization of the lesson plans. There might also be a centralization of where people um, sort of, uh, of sort of who, who decides what the assessments are, the new assessments that these, uh, that these lesson plans uh, create. And so it's very possible that we see that centralization and then we watch people go into smaller groups as they interact with their peers, primarily and maybe through some sort of mentor or TA system um, where, and I think that's gonna be a big change in education is that you'll see, you'll see more and more students who opt for smaller groups um, and that their classroom sizes actually go down because of the leverage you get through uh, centralization of resources. Mm, powerful. You know, shout out to Carnell for asking that question because, you know, I think it touches on, you know, what can, you know, companies do to help address the skills gap too, uh, whether it be, you know, starting within K through 12 or really, you know, trying to converge that with professional development, rethinking the, the curriculum around that. So that was, that was a really powerful question, Carnell. Thank you for asking that. You know, Gagan, you know, while, while we have you, man, one of the things that you know, we really wanted to talk with you about is a lot of the conversation is happening around diversity, equity, inclusion, and how organizations can create more equity within their workforce. You know, would love to have your thoughts on what do you think leaders can do to create that type of environment within their organizations and share with us a little bit about, you know, some of the things that you did um, for yourself at Udemy to ensure that you were um, equitable and how you hired and grew your teams. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I did a much better job at Sprig. At Udemy, I wasn't very aware of it. So Udemy ended up actually doing an amazing job here from what I know, uh, but most of it was after I left. So I left the company after about three years and um, the company has had many uh, senior leaders who are, who are of different, um, you know, d different uh, sort of DEI backgrounds. Um, but I, I haven't been at the company during that time. Um, in recent times, I worked on Sprig, where we did have, I think, a pretty good track record on DEI, given the context of the time that we were in. So given that it was 2013 uh, you know, to 2017, um, we had leaders at, at every, basically any sort of ethnicity or minority that you could name, we had a leader at least in each of them. And, and the company was probably around, you know, somewhere between 25 and 50% um, uh, led by, um, you know, uh, 
sort of uh, diversity candidates mm -hmm. um, or, or, or leaders. Uh, and I think that there's a few things that I learned along the way, but I'll also say like, look, the truth is that the way I learned all this is I saw people yelling about things on the internet. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wasn't thrilled about the way they did it, but yeah. I paid attention anyways. <laughs> and as I paid attention, I started to read the articles and the thoughts that they were having about it. And then I implemented those changes in my company. So uh, I can be someone, I'm not someone who's gonna be the loudest person in the room and who's gonna say things in a way that I think sometimes can be very hard to, to listen to and hard to agree with. But I will say that those movements that were happening well before you know, BLM, the most recent BLM outrage and the Me Too movement that happened in sort of in 2000, uh, call it, uh, 17 or sorry 2016 or 15 but before that there were other movements about diversity in tech and it was being talked about and i i read the articles that people were talking about and i tried to implement things so an example of something i implemented um i read that that women are uh less likely to ask for raises and that this is a contributing factor to people uh to inequity in compensation of course so that's two two things it's one that there is an inequity in comp comp compensation and you know there's the the proverbial pay gap mm. uh but two that at least in part that pay pay gap is not solely driven by people in power not giving people the same wage but also driven in part by cultural uh, faux pas or, or challenges associated with asking for raises so i started to deconstruct the system of how people get raises in companies and realize look it's better it's better at least in my company where i'm willing to put effort into this to mm -hmm be proactive about raises. So I created this policy that I never publicly talked about. Actually, I did not write this down. Nobody in the company really knew about it except for my head of HR eventually. Um, and I basically just every quarter looked at the um, salaries of everyone in the company. Uh, and I checked to see whether or not I thought there were imbalances. And I tried to naturally, and not imbalances based just on race or gender, just imbalances, period. Like, oh, this person, clearly is operating at a level that's significantly higher than this person. Why are they getting paid the same? Oh, okay. Let me, uh, and I would proactively give people raises and proactively. So I made a rule to myself or sort of a, a guideline that if I was proactively giving out, uh, raises or title bumps or changes in equity that I was doing a good job. And if someone came to me and asked me for a raise and they deserved it, so I ended up agreeing with them, then I knew I was making a mistake. I knew I was wrong, right? Because I should have preempted this if someone's already done it. Um, so by doing that, I think I was able, and I don't really know because of course, nobody, everyone's gonna have an opinion about how much they should be paid. But I think I did a pretty good job of, of uh, balancing the pay gap in our company. And I think that, you know, from a metrics perspective, you could look at the pay gap in our company and we didn't have anyone who was uh, paid uh, below or, or above their market as a result of, of me regularly checking the pay. Um, and of course, eventually my head of HR would also do this. And so the two of us would do this quarterly, roughly quarterly. Um, and that's an example, right? Another example is I am personally, uh, got f f funny story. I, I, I applied to Google as a, as a, as an undergraduate from college yeah. and I got rejected. I got accepted. So I went through all the hiring process. I went to the final round. I went in person to Google, you mm. know, they did the whole song and dance. And then that night a recruiter called me and said, Hey, you got the job. We want you to join Google. 
but there are a few more processes before you get your offer. And uh, so we're going to go through this process and we'd like you to send a few more pieces of paperwork. So one of the pieces of paperwork that they asked you to send in is your college transcript, which included for me, uh, I graduated uh, fairly quickly and so did not always, and I was not a very studious, I was not very studious to be honest. Like I didn't care about school at all. So <laughs> I had two uh, C pluses on my college transcript. And um, five weeks or six weeks later, after not hearing from them and being like in this weird rigmarole with Google, I eventually got a call saying, sorry, actually, uh, we have this hiring process and they had already explained this to me in the past, but they have this hiring process where they basically take your, uh, your packet is what they called it. It was like all of the interview notes from your, uh, candidacy, your resume, your college transcripts, et cetera. And they like circulate this amongst the executives at Google. Like, so it goes up to hiring committee after hiring committee and eventually probably like up to some C-level exec. I, I don't think it was CEO, but maybe every maybe every hire still had to get in front of the C-level C, uh, executive. And at some point in one of those hiring committees, I got rejected. So someone who never met me, uh, even though all my interviews said yes, uh, sort of sort of rejected me. Mm. And it could be because I went to Berkeley and not Stanford and Harvard. I don't know. <laughs> Berkeley is a pretty good school, so that sounds ridiculous. But I know I know that Google at one time did care and did find there to be a value in being at Stanford over a school like Berkeley. So yeah. I know that that's true. I know that they cared about GPA. Uh, mm. And I, I, so I don't know what happened. But I know that afterwards I was pretty upset about it and felt like I was as good as any candidate and did not feel like that was a really reasonable process. And so I've always had a problem with what I call elitist Silicon Valley hiring. And I felt like that was a pretty elitist thing that Google was doing. It turns out that Google has since recanted this philosophy and has realized that this is a bad thing. Yeah. And so I, I think to some extent there's some vindication there. And so I developed a philosophy myself because I felt like I was being uh, profiled. Of course, I'm Indian, so some many people would say I wasn't being profiled, but I felt like I was being profiled for my grades, mm. and inaccurately. Uh, and, and so I developed this thought process of I really didn't care what school you went to. Mm. Um, I actually, what I cared about, and so I never really looked at someone's uh, school um, uh, when hiring. What I cared about was two things. One, you still had to have the skills that I wanted for the job. Yeah. So. Obviously, if you didn't go to school, it was less likely that you would have those skills. You might have those skills, but it was less likely. So I'm still going to be biased towards people who are in the system. I, that, I know that that's true. But number two, I'm going to look at lines and not dots. So rather than looking at where you are right now, I'm going to look at where you came from and where you went to. So if you grew up in, you know, my co-founders were grew up in a one-room schoolhouse in southeastern Turkey, which is a pretty uh, sort of, you know, uh, flyover state sort of part of Turkey, right? Um, and they are they ended up becoming like uh, number two, number three in the world in, uh, in math. Uh, um, it, it, you know, th they were really, really smart. If you're able to go from a one-room schoolhouse in Turkey to being one of the smartest engineers I've ever met, mm. uh, I think of that as far more impressive than someone who went to Stanford and ended up getting a job at Facebook or Google. Which wow. is fine, but if you then went to Palo Alto High School, I'm like, what did you really do? You just did the average of what people who came from Palo Alto High School did. And that's great, and I actually think you're probably really smart, and I might be friends with you, but I'm not impressed. 
And so what ended up happening was I ended up starting to hire people and noticing that I was hiring people who were more likely to have come up through the system in a way that was a little bit uh, different. And that's the types of things that I do with DEI. And I'm still looking for a lot more. So if you're someone who's listening to this and thinking, wow, Goggin's still in 2017 or 2016 <laughs> thinking, sure, send me links and articles and I'd love to read them and learn about them. Uh, yeah. But I think that that philosophy that I had uh, helped me um, have a more diverse team because essentially I was looking at the underlying reasons that people think about diversity and what's good and bad and then trying to fix it instead of just saying, hey, I want 50% of my leadership team to be diverse. And uh, I think that's a blunt instrument that is not, I don't like it at all. So I, I'm not interested in quotas. I, I don't have a problem with affirmative action in universities. I'm sort of neutral on it. But on the from the perspective of actually like my own company yeah. i'm not going to look at someone who's a, a woman or who's who's uh who's you know black or latino or whatever i'm not going to look at someone in from whatever race or ethnicity and say you have you're going to be in my company because of it or you're not going to be in my company because of it what i'm going to do is understand why the system is biased against that group of people go to the first principles of what creates that bias and mm. do my best to make an improvement in that. And mm. I also think the flip side is, sorry, I, I could talk about this forever, but the flip side is I don't, I think that because of this first principles learning, because some percentage of the imbalance between any given sect of society and forget race and gender, this is also true. Just if you grew up with lower income parents. So let's just talk about income if your parents had a lower income and, and then than uh, someone else's parents, like my parents had a lower income than maybe the, the other people in my neighborhood, for example, I have I have a lower chance of success. But it also means that I got probably on average a lower education, and therefore I might actually not be as qualified for the job. It's complicated. You can't just expect us to start hiring everyone who's from a lower income uh, at the same level that we hire people from. A, a higher income. But what you can do is say, look, I also don't want it to work against you in a way that's unnatural or unfair. Mm -hmm. And as a hiring manager, I can look at it and say, well, if you were able to come from a lower income and do this, that might actually be more impressive than someone who came from a higher income and made only like a, a marginal improvement on that. And so I can be uh, somewhat, I, I can improve the situation, but I cannot fix the situation. I cannot go out there and immediately just change the way the world. And, you know, it, I think it takes generations for, yeah. for you know, uh, this to change, but I can become less of a part of the problem. And that's my goal. Man, Gaga, I think that's so powerful, man. And, you know, I think I love your approach around first principles thinking and really touching at the root cause of what causes bias in hiring process. And, you know, you're one of the leaders that, you know, even just based on the conversations that we've had, that I believe is doing a tremendous great job around it and thinking about it from a much more inclusive and a fundamental lens, whereas a lot of, you know, leaders and businesses, they just kind of throw out quotas and they fail at meeting those quotas. And I think, you know, really we're going to see more change at the team level and, and really thinking about it from a first principle standpoint. So you know, I think you're doing a great job, man. Want to show love to Michael, who's saying great point of looking at the journey to help with your assessment. I also call that the grit journey. What do you think? Yeah, about yeah. I love the term grit journey. That's great. I'm going to use that. Yeah. Yeah. I look at the grit journey of, of someone's life. And I think that's a huge indicator of whether or not they're going to be you know, a valuable asset to a team. Um, and 
again, like when you hire someone, you're looking at potential because they won't want to do the same thing they did in their last job. Yep. So by virtue of looking at uh, their potential, you are naturally going to want to know, well, what's the slope of their curve? Mm. What is the slope of their growth curve? And so if they started at a, uh, at, a, at, a, at a different spot, their growth curve is probably, you know, that helps put context around a growth curve. Yeah. Shout out to David who also say, man, wow. That's very insightful, everything that you said. With that said, Gagan, thank you so much for joining us on another live episode of Guide Live. You know, Gagan, what's one powerful takeaway that you have for our community who is currently surviving and thriving through these tough times, man? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously uh, an extremely challenging time, and I'm not – I don't want to take anything away from that. If you've had days that are tough – I mean, I've had many days where I've just taken two days off, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I'm lucky enough to be able to do that. But when I say off, you can still work. Like I might have still done calls or whatever, but I just wasn't my best. And at the very least, emotionally, I gave myself the day off, right? So I might have still had to do work. I might have still have gone in and answered emails. But at the very least in my head, I'm thinking, all right, you're just not going to be the best today and that's okay. And I bounced back quickly because I gave myself a pass because I knew that that was part of it. Um and uh, and so I totally think that you need to do that, and, and everyone should. At the same time, recognize that things are changing faster. And for anyone who's uh, sort of entrepreneurial, and by watching this podcast, you are by definition entrepreneurial because you're doing something a lot of people won't do, which yeah. is uh, you know learn and actively learn and listen and try to try to try to apply that to your life. So anyone who's listening to this, in my opinion, is already a step ahead. Um, it's time to take advantage of that. And things are going to change and the new world is going to need new things. They're going to need new uh, systems. They're going to need new companies. They're going to need new skills. And if you are moving towards that, then while this time might be difficult over the next, you know, call it uh, uh, five to 10 years, uh, if you position yourself well, you will be able to take a, a lot of advantage of that. So um, that's my, my advice to you is if you can get through this emotionally and, and personally, financially. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, look at the worst things that have happened uh, 50 to hundred years ago, you know, world war two, uh, what it was like in the Spanish flu, which was, you know, where, where they didn't have all this information and access to technology and access to the ability to work from home, et cetera. And I'll say that this is still actually very much a first world version of a international, of a national disaster in the sense that we're very lucky to live in a time where uh, we know what's going on. We have the ability to shelter in place. Uh, many of us will still have food on our tables and still have a roof over our heads. And, you know, I think about the people for which that's not true in, thir- you know, in developing nations. And if you obviously if you're that, I, I'm here with you. Um, but if you have access to internet, you probably have access to a roof over your head and food. That'd be my guess. Um, and so I'd say, you know, be grateful for that because there's lo- there's people out there. I mean, I think about the people I visited over the last couple of years traveling and I just I worry about what's going on for them and what happened 50 or 100 years ago when people went through stuff like this and didn't have what we have today. So, mm. so be grateful, have some perspective and take advantage of the entrepreneurial opportunities during this time. Gagan, man, thank you so much for joining us, man. We Thank you, Tim. I really appreciate it. We definitely need to have you on for a future episode, man. What do you think, brother? Yeah, I love that. Thank you. Thank you, my brother, man. Talk to you soon, bro. All right. All right. <laughs> Peace. Man, powerful episode. Please definitely make sure you connect with Gagan on LinkedIn, Twitter, and his website. Super wealth of information. One of the greatest guys in the industry. 
and in the business. With that said, we are gradually expanding our beta. Much love to Betty. Much love to Betty and everyone that was joining us today. Angel, Joel, Angel, Francesca. Appreciate you, Cardinal. Thank you so much for tuning in. And Andrea, hope you enjoyed this episode. Once again, please share this episode with your network, your teammates, your friends, whoever, and let them know that we are currently in beta for Guide. So if they want to access early access to Guide for their workforce or for themselves, check out guideapp.co slash early access, guideapp.co slash early access. Much love to Tim. Much love to Betty. Going to give you the last word. She says, Tim McGon, this is such enjoyable and important discussion. Thank you for sharing and keeping it 100. 100. Betty, much love to you. Thank you for always tuning in. You are top, top, top notch. Appreciate you. With that said, happy Monday, you all. I am going to sign off with my favorite words. Wishing you peace, love, and abundance. Peace, y'all. Talk soon.